This news is funded by viewers and listeners like you. Please support our work at democracynow.org slash support. From New York, this is Democracy Now! This is what happens when you ensure that the state of Missouri does not require a permit to carry or to purchase, does not uh, require any restrictions on people who've been convicted of intimate partner violence, does not ban assault rifles. One dead, 22 wounded in the Super Bowl parade shooting in Kansas City. We'll take a look at Missouri's gun control laws, some of the weakest in the country. The shooting came on the sixth anniversary of the Parkland, Florida, high school massacre. We'll speak with a Parkland father about his son, Guac, and his new art project, Shotline, which will call lawmakers with AI-generated audio messages featuring the voices of gun violence victims like his son. Then Australia's parliament approves a motion calling for the release of imprisoned WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. This will be the time for all of us to take a stand, to stand up and to take a stand, and to stand with Julian Assange, stand for the principles of justice. Friends, stand for the principles of media freedom and the rights of journalists to do their job. Assange is facing a critical appeal hearing in a British court next week. His last chance to challenge his extradition to the United States, where he faces 175 years in prison for publishing classified documents. Then to Gaza and to the phone call that reverberated around the world. Yes, in the car. We're next to the tank. Are you inside the car? Hello. 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 We'll look at the case of Hind Rajab. The six-year-old called for help after a family was shot and killed by Israeli forces. Two weeks later, their bodies were found alongside the two rescue workers who tried to save her. We'll speak with the Palestine Red Crescent. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russia's state media is reporting imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died at the age of 47. Prison authorities said in a statement earlier today Navalny felt ill after going on a walk and lost consciousness. They say medical staff was unable to resuscitate him. The cause of death has not yet been determined. Navalny's spokesperson, Kiri Armish, said on social media their team has not received confirmation of his death and that Navalny's lawyer was traveling to the penal colony located in the town of Harp in the Arctic Circle, where Navalny is serving a 19-year sentence on charges of extremism over his criticism of Russian President Vladimir Putin. The prison, nicknamed Polar Wolf, is among the harshest in Russia, due in part to the severe winter. Navalny has been imprisoned since 2021 when he returned to Moscow after an assassination attempt with the nerve agent Novelchuk in 2020. Navalny has been hailed as an anti-corruption crusader who is willing to stand up to Putin and has also been condemned for his past ultranationalist comments. 
In Gaza, Israel's attack on Khan Yunus's Nasser Hospital has killed at least five patients after electricity and oxygen supplies were cut off. This is a hospital volunteer describing the forced evacuation ahead of Israel's incursion. 99% of the people in Nasser Hospital evacuated. There are nearly 20 members of the medical staff still there. There is tension still. There is no protection or safety. Quadcopters are everywhere. Even ferocious dogs, which have monitoring cameras around their necks, are in the hospital in an aggressive way. This comes as fears mount over a planned Israeli ground attack on some 1.4 million people in Rafah. Even the U.S. has said the move would be a disaster without a realistic evacuation plan. The U.N. and others say there's no plausible way to evacuate Rafah. Evacuation to a safe place in Gaza is an illusion. Um, and um, we need to push back on the calls that we're all hearing from the authorities to say, you must help us move the people of Gaza to some safe place. This is an illusion. Israeli airstrikes on Rafah continue to kill Palestinian civilians. This is the mother of one of the victims speaking earlier today. My daughter's husband is from the Zarbi family. She died with all her family. I live in Mirage and she lives in Rafah. When I heard the news, I started screaming, asking my children to take me to see her. But they told me, where should we take you at night? Stay here. I told them to take me to see her, but they said that she was unrecognizable, and I said that even if it was only her flesh, I wanted to see her. Close to 29,000 Palestinians have been killed and over 68,000 wounded in Israeli attacks since October 7th. Over 130 journalists have been killed in Gaza since October 7th, according to the local media office. The Committee to Protect Journalists says some three-quarters of all journalists killed last year died in Israel's assault on Gaza. Of the 99 journalists killed around the world in 2023, 72 were Palestinian. Students at Stanford University are ending a months-long sit-in to demand the university call for a ceasefire in Gaza and divest from Israeli companies complicit in war crimes, among other things. Stanford officials had started cracking down on the action, which began in October, threatening to arrest and discipline students who camped out on campus. But the school finally agreed to two meetings with the group to discuss their demands, leading to the decision to disband the longest continuous sit-in in Stanford's history. New York Judge Juan Merchant ruled that Donald Trump's hush money case can proceed, setting March 25th as a start date for the first ever criminal trial of a former U.S. president. Trump's lawyers had sought to delay the trial, claiming it'll interfere with campaigning. Trump will be required to attend the trial, which is expected to last six weeks. Meanwhile, New York State Judge Arthur Angoran is expected to rule today on the $370 million civil fraud case against Trump for inflating his business's net worth to obtain more favorable loans. This comes as Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis took the stand in Georgia.
Defense lawyers are seeking to remove Willis from the sweeping election subversion case against Trump and his allies over her romantic relationship with Nathan Wade, the top prosecutor in the case. Wade also took the stand Thursday as both parties denied any wrongdoing or any financial benefit from their personal relationship, which they say ended last year. Fonnie Willis sparred with Trump defense lawyers throughout the contentious hearing. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. In other Trump news, the GOP frontrunner repeated his threat against NATO allies that he says do not pay enough into the military alliance. At a campaign rally in South Carolina Wednesday, Trump said, quote, if they're not going to pay, we're not going to protect, okay? Unquote. Vice President Kamala Harris is addressing the Munich Security Conference today, where she's expected to reassure NATO allies following Trump's remarks. Special counsel David Weiss has charged a former FBI informant with lying about President Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden receiving millions of dollars from the Ukrainian air energy company Burisma. Alexander Smirnov was arrested Wednesday at a Las Vegas airport. The Biden's alleged illegal involvement with Burisma is central to Republicans' impeachment inquiry into the president. In Russia, anti-war opposition politician Boris Nadezhdin acknowledged his chances of running for the presidency against Vladimir Putin next month, quote, have plunged completely to zero, unquote, after Russia's Supreme Court rejected legal challenges to his disqualification. Nadezhdin's candidacy was thwarted last week when election authorities claimed there were irregularities in some of the signatures collected for his application. He said his campaign had nonetheless been successful in advancing an alternative to Putin. We have opened up a great breach. We have shown that a huge number of people in the country do not support the course that is being implemented now. A huge number of people want Russia to be peaceful and free. Senegal's Constitutional Council Thursday overturned President Macky Sall's decision to delay this month's presidential election, ruling the move unconstitutional. President Sall, who served the two terms allowed under Senegalese law, ordered the election be postponed until December, triggering deadly protests, plunging Senegal into political turmoil as his opponents accused him of orchestrating a constitutional coup. Senegal's Constitutional Council urged authorities to reschedule the vote as soon as possible. Greece has become the first Orthodox Christian country to legalize same-sex marriage. It's the 16th EU country to legislate marriage equality, the measure which passed a parliamentary vote Thursday despite opposition from the powerful Orthodox Church, also grants same-sex couples equal parental rights, including the right to adopt. Members of Greece's LGBTQ communities gathered to celebrate the historic victory. I'm very happy. As someone who grew up in the countryside, this is a dream I've waited for for many years, just like all of us. Literally, I am at a loss for words. I'm no longer a second-class citizen. We have the same obligations, but now we also have more of the same rights. 
Twelve survivors of sexual abuse and trafficking by Jeffrey Epstein are suing the FBI for failing to protect them. The 12 unnamed plaintiffs say the FBI ignored tips and complaints about Epstein and his close associate, Ghislaine Maxwell, for over 20 years. Epstein died by suicide in a Manhattan jail in 2019 while awaiting trial on federal charges. Ghislaine Maxwell is serving a 20-year prison sentence after being convicted in 2022 of helping Epstein recruit and sexually assault teenage girls. Climate groups have sued the Biden administration over its failure to adequately assess the public health impacts on frontline communities and its five-year plan for offshore drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. Advocates say residents in the region already suffer disproportionate health burdens due to the toxic pollution produced by federal offshore oil and gas leasing. This comes as the American Petroleum Institute has also filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration demanding officials greenlight more lease sales, despite dire warnings of the impacts on the climate and people's health. Meanwhile, researchers estimate over 125 million U.S. residents will be exposed to unhealthy air contamination by 2054 due to intensifying wildfires made worse by climate change. In related news, scientists warn worsening wildfires, deforestation and warmer temperatures could permanently destroy the water cycle, sustaining large portions of the Amazon rainforest in the coming decades. In a study published this week by the journal Nature, researchers say that between 10 percent to nearly half of the Amazon's ecosystem is at risk of transitioning from rainforest to savanna by the year 2050, unless deforestation is dramatically reduced and urgent action is taken to curb the worst impacts of global warming. This is one of the study's lead authors, Bernardo Flores, a researcher at the University of Santa Catarina in Brazil. Once we cross this tipping point, we cannot, maybe we cannot do anything anymore. And then it's useless to stop deforestation, to try to stop. We may not even be able to because the forest will die by itself. So, I mean, it's, it's time to <laughs> red alert. And a new report from the Center for Climate Integrity reveals the oil and plastics industries have deceptively promoted recycling as a sustainable solution for over half a century, despite knowing plastic recycling is not technically or economically viable at scale. The report, titled The Fraud of Plastic Recycling, uncovers new documents showing companies like ExxonMobil and the plastics industry have pushed a misleading public campaign for decades, helping fuel the plastic waste crisis in order to keep making money and avoid regulation. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Police in Kansas City, Missouri, say it was a dispute between several people that led to the mass shooting at Wednesday's Super Bowl victory parade. One person was killed. The popular community radio host from KKFI, Lisa Lopez-Galvan, who was a mother of two. At least 22 people were wounded, about half of them children. Kids in Kansas City had the day off from school to attend the parade. The motive for the shooting spree is still, quote, actively being investigated, unquote. No one has yet been charged. Police initially detained three people, including two minors. The adult was reportedly released. Witnesses described the chaos at the parade in an interview with CBS News. You hear the gunshots and, you know, initially in my head, I was like, oh, you know, fireworks. But then it clicked. Yeah, I was in the military. So then immediately it clicked. I was like, oh, no, that's gunshots. And I was like, oh, gunshots. 
and I looked, looked at each other and ran and towards. yeah, we looked down and you could see the crowd start to run away. And then we saw people start to drop to, sorry. We saw people drop to the ground and it was just a surreal event. In the first 46 days of this year, there have been 49 mass shootings in the United States. Almost 5,000 people have died from gun violence this year already, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Missouri has some of the weakest gun control laws in the country, with no universal background checks, no assault weapon restrictions, no ban on large capacity magazines, no waiting periods to purchase a gun, and no domestic violence gun laws. Last year, Kansas City set a new high for gun violence, and the city has one of the country's highest murder rates. Residents held a vigil Thursday night. You got to protect us. I'm scared as hell. I don't want to go to any more events if this kind of thing's going to happen. Lord, we're hurt. We're saddened. We're angry. We're confused. And seemingly lost. Because we're all hurting in our own way. We're all grieving in some way. In the face of darkness, our resilience will shine brightly. Remember that we are stronger than this moment of despair. That last voice was Kansas City Mayor Pro Tem Rihanna Park Shaw, who became the first black woman appointed to the position last year. For more, we're joined by Brittany Packnett Cunningham, an activist who's originally from Missouri, host and executive producer of the podcast Undistracted, joining us now from Washington, D.C. Brittany, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. If you can respond to what happened in your home state um, and talk about the gun laws of Missouri. Well, Missouri is a state where, unfortunately, pregnant people are um, not allowed to have any uh, autonomy over their bodies. And yet we don't trust those folks to make decisions about their bodies. But we do trust folks to be able to purchase a gun without a permit and wield it almost anywhere. This is what happens um, when we continue to see a legacy, a very long legacy in Missouri of a Republican Party that is more concerned with protecting themselves in the rural areas and the mostly white areas from those of us in the so-called urban cores who are most often black um, than they are actually about the safety of all of their constituents across the state. So this, unfortunately, is not surprising. Um, as you've said, we've had over 46 uh, mass shootings in America and far more community violence every single day. And as my friend Shannon Watt says, what we saw happen in Kansas City was a uniquely American hell. So if you can talk specifically about Missouri and these laws, whether it comes to people who've been involved in domestic violence getting guns, um, whether it has to do with being able to enforce any of the weak gun laws that they already have, Brittany. 
Absolutely. So the gun laws in Missouri uh, place Missouri at number 48 on the Gabby Gifford scale in terms of the quality of gun control laws. That's 48 out of 50. There's not much worse the state could be doing. And that is because of efforts like the current one, um, a bill on uh, in the state legislature right now that wants to allow people to open carry on public transportation uh, and in houses of worship, adding to the already long list of where unpermitted people who had no wait time, who could buy a gun through a gun show loophole, um, can wield these weapons at the danger of often uh, children and young people who are just trying to enjoy their day, as we saw at the parade. These kinds of laws in Missouri are expansive because, as you say, they don't even restrict people um, who've been convicted or charged with intimate partner violence or domestic violence. And we know that this is um, often where we see gun violence. There's also a great incidence of uh, suicide by gun uh, in, in Missouri, rather. Um, and that's not even taken into account. Often we hear Republicans talk about the mental health crisis, but and that being the real culprit uh, in the gun violence epidemic in America. And yet, in Missouri, we see that if you have been seen by a court to not be mentally incompetent, that you too can restore your gun rights. So none of the math is mathing. None of these things are adding up from a party that claims to value life and clearly devalues life when it comes to its permissive and pervasive gun laws. So let's talk about the comparisons you make uh, between the very loose gun laws in Missouri and why you feel it's important to compare that to reproductive rights laws and how uh, people are treated when it comes to issues like abortion. Well, I think it's important because for decades now, the Republican Party has been presenting themselves as the party of family values, that they believe deeply in the sanctity of life. Well, if we really look at history, we know that the opposite is true. We know that the so-called Christian rights fight against abortion rights um, is actually rooted in the fact that they lost their fight to preserve segregation in America, and they realized that politically they needed more numbers. So they got together with people who don't believe in health care and other religious um, who don't believe in birth control, rather, and other religious backgrounds to create those numbers and to start a 50 year campaign to overturn Roe versus Wade, which unfortunately has been successful. You mirror that supposed sanct belief in the sanctity of life against gun laws that are not only allowing for the proliferation of guns, but are very clearly causing catastrophe and chaos. Uh, in the streets of days that are supposed to be a day of celebration. And the the hypocrisy is apparent. So this has never actually been about the sanctity of life. It's never actually been about uh, family values. And we constantly are calling out that segregation, that, that hypocrisy rather. But one thing is clear to me, that that hypocrisy uh, it doesn't matter to the GOP, that they have no shame about that. So what we have to do is make it absolutely disqualifying if you are going to run for office to accept any money whatsoever from the gun lobby and to be someone who is proving yourself to uh, to purport and push uh, these kinds of lax gun laws um, at all costs. That should not be allowed in any state legislature, uh, at any governor's mansion, uh, at the federal level, the local level. That should those kinds of beliefs, that kind of donation should be disqualifying 
from the work um, that our public officials and public servants are supposed to be doing. Can you talk about the NRA's influence on the governor, Mike Pearson, on um, Senator, for example, from Missouri, Josh Hawley? Absolutely. You know, Mike Pearson's legacy, unfortunately, is one of cowardly obedience, that he has fallen in line with all of the beats that the Missouri GOP has forced him into um, and has been doing for a long time. So there's been a long line of Missouri governors, Missouri senators that have uh, followed the beat of this drum. That is Roy Blunt, who preceded uh, Josh Howley in the Senate. He was one of the top recipients of NRA money during almost the entirety of his Senate career. Josh Howley, of course, who followed him and who famously ran from the violence that he stoked, just like Mike, Pen uh, Mike Par uh, Parsons did um, at the parade that day. Josh Howley has received $1.4 million from, uh, from the NRA. So Mike Pearson, Josh Howley, Roy Blunt, and so many others are simply falling in line. Now, Mark, Mike Parsons can't run for governor again, so he's there to keep the status quo in place until the GOP brings in the next person to do exactly the same. And unfortunately, these kinds of influences and that kind of money will continue to pervade not just Missouri, but the entire country if we allow it to. And finally, the terrible loss of um, the KKFI pro uh, uh, the KKFI programmer, the well-known DJ um, Lisa Galvan. Uh, she was a DJ on KKFI, the community radio station uh, in. Um, Kansas City, KKFI, well known for giving voice to um, grassroots activism, to communities, uh, the fact that she is the death as a result of this uh, mass shooting that took place in Kansas City during the Super Bowl parade. It's absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, it leaves a massive hole in the city because her listeners, her audience, um, that community was really held together by uh, so much of what she talked about, so much of what she communicated, the kind of information that she was intentional about sharing, despite the fact that it would push against the status quo. And those are the kind of voices that continue to be cut down in this gun violence epidemic. You know, it strikes me that that mass shooting was on the anniversary of the Parkland shooting, which means that we're literally layering gun violence anniversaries on top of one another. That is that uniquely American hell. It hit Kansas City, it hit her, and it hit the entire community and will continue to reverberate until something is done about it. There were 800 uh, uniformed law enforcement officers at that parade. And because police are only ever set up to respond to violence after it's happened, they did not actually prevent that tragedy despite their massive presence. So we have to take a serious look at what true public safety from the ground up looks like instead of over-policing from the top down. And part of that has to be ensuring that the flow of guns into our communities is stopped. It is absolutely the guns. And everybody who wants to make it so about something else is missing the point entirely. Brittany Packnett Cunningham, activist, host and executive producer of the podcast Undistracted from Missouri. Uh, you mentioned Parkland. We're going to go right now uh, to the anniversary of the Parkland High School shooting. We'll speak with Manny Oliver, the father of Guac, one of the 17 killed six years ago on Valentine's Day. Stay with us.
Devil's Tongue by Meryl Wagner. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. The mass shooting in Kansas City came on the sixth anniversary of Parkland, Florida, school massacre when a 19-year-old gunman shot dead 17 people, injured 17 others at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. To mark the anniversary, gun control advocates traveled to Washington to play for lawmakers a series of AI-generated audio messages featuring the voices of students killed in Parkland and other gun violence victims. This is an AI-generated message from Joaquin Oliver, who was shot dead in Parkland at the age of 17. Hello, I'm Joaquin Oliver. Six years ago, I was a senior at Parkland. Many students and teachers were murdered on Valentine's Day that year by a person using an AR-15 but you don't care. You never did. It's been six years and you've done nothing. Not a thing to stop all the shootings that have continued to happen since. The thing is, I died that day in Parkland. My body was destroyed by a weapon of war. I'm back today because my parents used AI to recreate my voice to call you. Other victims like me will be calling too, again and again, to demand action. How many calls will it take for you to care? How many dead voices will you hear before you finally listen? Every day, your inaction creates more voices. If you fail to act now, we'll find someone who will. The AI-generated audio appears on a new website called The Shotline, which aims to flood the congressional hotline with the AI-resurrected voices of murdered kids. On Wednesday, Joaquin Oliver's parents, Manny and Patricia, were set to appear on CNN to talk about their new project when news broke about the shooting in Kansas City. We had an entirely different interview that we were going to do here uh, just to talk about some of the work that you guys are doing on Capitol Hill, trying to bring about awareness and change. And you see this happening as you were here visiting Washington. What is on your mind as you're, as you're watching this? I'm no, not surprised at all. Um, it's like literally we interrupt this interview because we have another mass shooting going on and then you might be interrupting that one because it was going to be another one. So it never stops. For more, we're joined by Manuel Oliver, the father of Joaquin, one of 17 people killed in the 2018 mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Manny's the co-founder of the gun reform group Change the Ref. His new project is The Shot Line. He's joining us today from Lansing, Michigan, where he's set to perform his one-person show called Guac. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Manny, once again, as we do so many times, offering you our condolences, not only on the death of your son six years ago, Guac, but on the gun violence deaths of so many in this country. Um, so they interrupted your shot line um, presentation on CNN to bring you yet another mass shooting that you had to respond to. Can you take it from there and talk about the project you were in D.C. to present? 
Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. That's exactly what happened. Um, we, we reach a point where we're going to fight about, uh, dates. Like I thought, I thought February 14th will be the day that we honor the, the victims from Parkland. But I can tell you now that next year, um, a lot of people will be honoring what happened in Kansas city. And, and that's the best way for America to forget about a shooting, a mass shooting. Uh, having a new one will make everybody ignore the other one. That's sad, but it's true. And, and shame on us on that. We, um, we were in, in D.C. launching uh, the shot line. Uh, and the shot line is basically the result of more than six years being ignored. My voice has been out there, Patricia's voice, and thousands, millions of voices have been uh, knocking doors and, and trying to convince, begging these politicians to pass laws and to prioritize life over guns. <clears throat> and that did not work or hasn't worked enough. So we're bringing the voices of the ones that we lost, of our loved ones. And, and, and with the technology that we have today, we can do that. So now we have an army of dead people, people that was killed and murdered by your, um, uh, the blessing of our system on the gun manufacturers, uh, asking for change. Uh, so far, believe it or not, we have close to 40,000 calls made. And we just started a, a, a couple of days ago. So um, when you tell me, call your representative. If you want to see change, call your representative. That is exactly what we're doing. But I don't want to call it. I want Joaquin to call my representative. Let's see if that way we can find some change. So you called it shot line because? Well, for obvious reasons. Uh, this is people that has been shot. In the Joaquin's case, he got shot four times with an AR-15 inside his school. Which is the other thing. Like, if you find this uncomfortable, which is something that we, we heard already, well, I think that uh, you don't know what uncomfortable is. I can tell you about feeling uncomfortable when they, when they let you know that your son, your loved one, was shot and you won't be able to see him anymore. You won't be able to watch the Super Bowl with him, for example, anymore, forever. That's being uncomfortable. So um, this is something that involves all of us. I think uh, we should all support this. And, and, and amazingly, uh, and this was kind of predictable, we have already more than 40 submissions from families that want their loved one voice to be part of this. Finally, Manny, you're in Lansing uh, to perform a one-person show called Guac. As we wrap up, tell us about this, and from Lansing to New York. This is an amazing project, uh, part of a very bad situation and terrible, painful traveling around the country. Uh, but we're here. We have the one-man show, and it's a story about Joaquin. You have to remember that Joaquin was here for 17 wonderful years. So I don't want people to remember. That will be unfair to remember Joaquin as the kid that died on February 14th. This is not the, uh, honoring Joaquin at all. So this is a roller coaster of emotions. People laugh, people cry, and people engage with what we're doing. Today, uh, we're part of an event. It's a Latinx Film Festival here. And uh, the show will be on Saturday, the 17th. I'm, I'm so happy 
It's probably my, my favorite project because I can talk about my song, no interruptions, uh, theater treatment, you know? Turn your phones off and just listen how beautiful and amazing my song still is. Manuel Oliver, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Co-founder of the gun reform group Change the Ref and the new project, The Shot Line. He's father of Joaquin Guac, one of 17 people killed six years ago in 2018 in Parkland, Florida. This is Democracy Now! When we come back, we go to London. Yes, this is democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is set to find out next week whether he's exhausted all potential challenges through the British courts to being extradited to the United States. The two-day hearing before the British High Court of Justice is scheduled to take place in London on Tuesday and Wednesday. Assange is seeking to appeal the June 2022 decision by then-British Home Secretary Priti Patel to approve a request by Washington for him to be extradited to the U.S., where he faces up to 175 years in prison for publishing classified documents exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Assange has been held in London's infamous Belmarsh prison since 2019, awaiting his possible extradition. Prior to that, he spent seven years cramped inside Ecuador's embassy in London. Ecuador had granted him political asylum. On Wednesday, Australia's parliament overwhelmingly approved a motion calling for the release of Assange, an Australian citizen. Australian MP Andrew Wilkie introduced the resolution. This will be the time for all of us to take a stand, to stand up and to take a stand, and to stand with Julian Assange, stand for the principles of justice. Friends, stand for the principles of media freedom and the rights of journalists to do their job. This has gone on too long, that it must be brought to an end. And I'm confident if this parliament can support this motion this afternoon, Deputy Speaker, it will send a very powerful political signal to the British government and to the US government. For more, we go to London, where we're joined by Jennifer Robinson, human rights attorney who's been advising Julian Assange and WikiLeaks since 2010. She's just gotten to London. She will be there in court next week. Jennifer Robinson, you are Australian. Can you talk about the significance of um, what led to, well, the culmination, this resolution passed from the right to the left in the Australian parliament? This is an unprecedented demonstration of political support for our campaign to bring Julian Assange home to Australia. As a fellow Australian citizen, this, I've never seen anything like this in the Australian Parliament. The Australian Parliament, and indeed supported by the Prime Minister and the government, calling on the US and the UK for Julian to be able to return home safely to Australia is a very strong signal to the United States that it is a priority for the Australian government, for the Australian people and our parliament, that Julian Assange be freed. This is the culmination of over a decade of campaigning in Australia. I have travelled down to, to Australia and to Canberra to meet with members of parliament over many years. Uh, campaign groups, community groups have been putting pressure on their local MPs and on the parliament to do this. And I think it's, it's a demonstration of the power of community organising and, and the important principle that this case raises for the Australian people and for the Australian government. So can you talk about how Julian Assange is seen in Australia? 
I mean, Australia is a close U.S. ally. What kind of conversations has the prime minister Albanese had with President Biden, who's called, at least in the past, uh, called Julian Assange a high tech terrorist? The strong sentiment in Australia that this is an Australian citizen. He's an award-winning journalist and publisher. He's won journalism awards around the world. He won the Sydney Peace Prize for the publications for which the US wants to prosecute him. So there's a, there's a huge amount of public support for Julian at home, which is reflected in this parliamentary resolution. Uh, the Australian Prime Minister took this position as first as leader of the opposition, uh, leader of the Labor Party, saying enough is enough. This case has gone on too long. It's time to bring it to an end. And that is a position he has maintained as our prime minister. And we are grateful to him for the principled leadership he's showing on this on this issue, which is the first time an Australian prime minister has taken such a strong stand. Uh, this goes to show the importance of the issue for Australia. And, and the prime minister has confirmed publicly that he has raised this issue on numerous occasions with President Biden. And we are working with the Australian government and continue to work with the Australian government to try to seek a resolution in the case. It's time that the United States respects our special relationship and listens to the calls of the Australian people in our parliament and our government and drops this case. It's dangerous for US press freedom. It's dangerous for all journalists in the United States. And this is now an issue of a, of a matter of the relationship with Australia. So what indications do you have that the Biden administration will respond or possibly drop the extradition uh, request? And what indications do you have what the court is going to rule next week, the high court in Britain? We certainly hope that the Biden administration will listen to the Australian government and our repeated calls for this case to be dropped. We want to see this matter dropped. We want to see Julian be able to go home safely to, to Australia. But next week, we're in the sharp end of the case. We are looking down the barrel of our final, potentially Julian's final appeal in the UK. If we are refused permission to appeal on all grounds next week, Julian's extradition will be ordered. The only avenue of appeal left available to us, that will be the end of his appeals in the UK, we cannot appeal to the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court, will be the European Court of Human Rights. And we are prepared to make a provisional measures application, which we hope will prevent his extradition. But if we're unsuccessful, he'll be on a plane to the United States and in prison in the United States. And that's how serious this matter is. That's how close we are to the very end of this case. What message do you think is being sent? It's not just about Julian Assange found guilty in the United States and not clear what kind of trial he would have here in the United States, but that he faces 175 years in prison. What message is this to The New York Times, to El Pais, to Der Spiegel, to The Guardian, to newspapers all over the world who published the WikiLeaks uh, findings? As we've been saying for years, this case sets a dangerous precedent for all journalists. Uh, it is, of course, what we call the New York Times problem, that Julian Assange was engaged in journalistic activity, the same kind of activity that journalists engage in every day, indeed the same activity that all those newspapers engaged in, in publishing this material. This precedent, if Julian is prosecuted, will be setting a precedent that any journalist anywhere in the world, not just in the United States, but anywhere in the world could be prosecuted and extradited to the United States to face prosecution for publishing truthful U.S. information. This is the first time in history the U.S. is pursuing a publisher under the Espionage Act. It crosses all legal thresholds in terms of the First Amendment and will set a dangerous precedent not just for Julian and WikiLeaks but for the entire media. That's why this is so concerning. And these, these arguments will feature in our appeal this week. We'll also be um, making the point that 
if, if extradited to the United States, this is a grave threat to free speech. We raise concerns about the, whether Julian has the ability to be able to get a fair trial in the United States, given where the trial will take place. And the very public statements that have been made by the President of the United States, by the, by the CIA director and other high-profile individuals affecting his right to be presumed innocent. So there's a number of serious concerns, including spying on us as lawyers, unlawful spying on Julian, the seizure of his legally privileged material. This case is rife with abuse. So leaving aside the very principled free speech concerns that have been raised by the New York Times and the Washington Post, that this is criminalising public interest journalism, there's also incredible due process concerns with this case and I think should be a cause for concern for anyone who cares about civil liberties. Um, and on a very different issue, uh, but the uh, top story today, you are a global human rights attorney. Uh, your response, though we can't confirm it independently, Russian state media reporting that the imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died in an Arctic Circle Russian prison at the age of 47. This news is utterly devastating, not just for Navalny's family, but for the Russian people. He's been an incredibly brave and courageous advocate for democracy, not just as opposition leader, but of course, let's not forget his investigative journalism, which revealed and exposed the corruption of Russia's ruling elite. Uh, it's a very sad day for his family and a very sad day for democracy in Russia. Jennifer Robinson, human rights attorney, has been advising Julian Assange and WikiLeaks since 2002, since 2010, speaking to us from London, where she'll attend the court hearing next week. And Democracy Now! will be covering that extensively. When we come back, we look at the case of Hindra Shab, six-year-old Palestinian girl in Gaza, called for help after a family was shot and killed by Israeli forces. Two weeks later, their bodies were found alongside the two rescue workers from Palestine Red Crescent who tried to save her. We'll speak with Palestine Red Crescent back in 20 seconds. <laughs> Sparrow by Marcel Khalifa and Unaima Khalil. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn to Gaza to a case that's reverberated around the world. Two weeks ago, January 29th, six-year-old Hind Rajab climbed into a car with her aunt, her uncle, and her cousins in Gaza City as they prepared to flee to the southern part of Gaza. But as they were in the car, an Israeli tank approached them and opened fire. Hind's 15-year-old cousin, Laon, called the Red Crescent for help. These were her last words recorded on the call with a Red Crescent dispatcher. Hello? Hello, dear? They are shooting at us. Hello? They are shooting at us. The tank is next to me. Are you hiding? Yes, in the car. We're next to the tank. Are you inside the car? Hello? 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 That was 
15-year-old Leanne's last words, killed along with the rest of her family. The only one who remained alive was six-year-old Hind. Wounded, she called the Red Crescent back, pleading with the dispatcher to be rescued. Come take me. You will come and take me? Do you want me to come and take you? I'm so scared. Please come. Please call someone to come and take me. Okay, dear. I will come and take you. After seeking approval from the Israeli military, two emergency workers with the Palestine Red Crescent, Yusuf Seno and Ahmed Amadoun, went to try to rescue six-year-old Hind. But dispatchers lost contact with the medics. Nearly two weeks later, Israeli forces finally withdrew from the area, and on Saturday, Hind's surviving family ventured back to the neighborhood. They found Hind dead inside the car, alongside the bodies of five of her family members. The car was riddled with bullet holes. The bodies of the two emergency workers were also found in an ambulance nearby, appeared to have been killed by Israeli fire just yards away from the car. This is Hin's mother, Wissam Hamada, after she learned of her daughter's killing. My heart is completely destroyed over my daughter. Two weeks, they killed them. Two weeks, they were in that car. I've told the world from day one, please go get Hind. God is the only one sufficient for us. Everyone failed us. I will tell God on the day of judgment about my daughter. I swear I will never forgive you or any human involved or any human rights organization. For more on this case, we're joined now by Nabal Fasah, spokesperson for the Palestine Red Crescent Society, joining us from Ramallah in the occupied West Bank. Nabal, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us everything you know about this case. Good evening. Thanks for having me. We at the Palestine Red Crescent were heartbroken and devastated again after learning the fate of our colleagues, Yusuf Zeno and Ahmed al-Madhoun. The ambulance was found bombed just meters away from the car where Hind was trapped. The story began after we have received a call from the uncles of Hind and Layan who live overseas, reporting that there's two little girls are still survived after their uh, family car was targeted by the Israeli tanks. He gave us a phone number, we called, and then Layan picked up the phone, and this is the call which you just previewed. Layan was killed while she was uh, over the phone with our dispatch center, and then we have called the number again, and hence, which picked up the phone and she was supposed to turn up to turn into six years in in may and now she has lost her life over three hours hand was over the phone with our dispatch center she was repeatedly seeking help repeatedly appealing for our teams to come and pick her up and pick her up it took us all of this time, over three hours, in order to coordinate safe access for our ambulances. And once the green light was given, the ambulance headed to the location. And upon its arrival, uh, they have reported that there is a green laser on them, that the Israeli occupation forces pointing a laser on them. And then we have heard a sound of gunfire or a bombardment, it wasn't that much clear, and the connection was lost. 
For over 12 days, we were uncertain regarding the fate of our colleagues Yusuf and Ahmed and the little girl hand. We were thinking that they might be arrested. There was so many questions, like if they are, were succeeded to rescue hand or not, because basically also they have confirmed that they can see the car of hand and they were so close to hand. It is just devastated to learn that Hind passed away alone. She was killed alone and scared, and our rescue teams were only meters away from her. And can you explain the weapon found by the ambulance? We're not sure regarding uh, the weapon found um, next to the ambulance. According to reports, um, it is uh, an artillery shelling U.S. made uh, was found next to the ambulance, which was bombed by the Israeli occupation forces while they were trying to save six-year-old hand. It's just so much sad to see paramedics losing their life while they are trying to save people's life. What was the fault of Yusuf and Ahmed? Their fault was they went in a rescue mission to save a six-year-old girl. It was a coordinated mission, and the green light was given, and Israeli occupation forces intentionally bombed the Palestine Red Crescent ambulance, which has clearly the Red Crescent emblem on top of the ambulance and from all the sides. There was no way or no option to be by mistake. It is an intentional targeting. Since the beginning of the war, we have lost 14 PRCS members. All of them were killed while they were on duty trying to save people's lives. And what does the Israeli military explain to you, given that you got permission for your rescue workers to go rescue Hind as the world heard her six-year-old pleas for help? Up to this moment, the Israeli military didn't comment or reply at what happened. And even during the 12 days, we have tried repeatedly, even through the ICRC, to uh, ask the Israeli occupation forces regarding what happened to Hand and the rescue team. And all the time they were mentioning they don't have info regarding this incident. To turn out after 12 days, they have bombed the ambulance and still they don't have info regarding the incident. I want to turn to another case. Um, the Palestine Red Crescent has just posted new video online as evidence uh, that their ambulance was shot at and its staff were, quote, brutally assaulted by Israeli forces. Um, PRCS said the video was taken around a week ago and shows a Red Crescent paramedic with two black eyes sitting in an ambulance um, that is pockmarked by bullet holes. The organization says the attack happened as the ambulance crew was delivering oxygen cylinders to Alamal Hospital in Gaza. It also stated that Israel had claimed they had transferred the oxygen cylinders to Alamal Hospital. Can you explain what took place here in this video that we are watching? Yes, for over a week, um, Al-Amal Hospital was run out of oxygen. This has resulted to 
uh, three of our patients died because of the lack of oxygen. After we managed to coordinate getting uh, oxygen cylinders to the hospital via the ICRC, our ambulance heads, to bring the oxygen cylinders from Nasser Hospital and to transport them to Al Amal Hospital. In its way, the ambulance, Israeli occupation forces, opened fire at the hospital and they insult and beat our paramedic who was trying to move and transport this oxygen cylinder, which is life-saving for our patients. This is not the first attack because at that moment, also, a week ago, the Israeli occupation forces raided Al-Amal Hospital. They have destroyed medical equipment and they dehumanized the medical staff, patients and their companions. They arrested nine of the Palestine Red Crescent members from Al-Amal Hospital, including four doctors and a nurse. They have beaten the staff deny them, uh, not allowing them to drink water or even to go use the toilet and tie their hands on their backs. The situation is extremely dangerous inside Al-Amal Hospital. We are still extremely worried regarding the safety of our teams who were arrested from Al-Amal Hospital today. Two of them were arrested, were released, but seven of our PRCS members still detained up to this moment who were arrested from inside Al-Amal Hospital. Al-Amal Hospital is under besiege and continuous attack for the 25th day. Today, Israeli occupation forces targeted the second floor of the hospital with artillery shelling. Gladly, uh, only damage for two of the nursing rooms, but there was no injuries among the staff or the patients. But the situation remains very dangerous with Israeli tanks are in front of the hospital, besieging the hospital, continuous gunfire and bombardment surrounding the hospital. No one is able to go in or go out of the hospital. There is no food no water, extreme shortage of medicine and medical supplies inside the hospital. The situation is beyond dire. Nabal, I asked you about Israeli response. I want to ask you about the U.S. government response and how important it is. This is a clip of State Department spokesperson Matt Miller at a news conference on Wednesday. He was questioned about the killing of six-year-old Hind and her family by a reporter from The Intercept, Prem Thacker. It's been over two weeks since Israeli forces attacked uh, Hindar Arab's family, killing her aunt, uncle, and cousins, leaving her trapped alone in her vehicle. We heard her pleas to the Red Crescent Society. Two medics were sent, all to be blown up, allegedly, by Israeli forces. I wanted to ask about the status of the inquiry into this, just because it seems if the Israeli government, you know, which seemingly does have a pretty sophisticated operation, is prioritizing this, and they don't already know which soldiers to interview, for instance, they have Red Crescent calls, timestamps, the location of the Red Crescent staff to, you know, uh, question and rely on plenty of material to figure out who exactly to um, inquire with and to figure out who to hold accountable. Um, so I want to first ask about the status of this. Sure. Meeting. So um, I think that question is appropriately directed to the government of Israel. I will say on behalf of the United States, we have made clear to them that we want that incident to be investigated. They have told us they are investigating it. Uh, it's our understanding that investigation is not yet complete. You should direct questions to them about where it stands. But we want to see it completed as soon as possible. And as I said from this podium several days ago, uh, if accountability is appropriate, we want to, be, uh, we want to uh, uh, see accountability put in place.
Nabil Parsak, we just have 30 seconds. Um, that's the State Department spokesperson. How important is pressure from the United States and Israel? As you talked about a U.S. weapon being found near the um, a shelled ambulance. It is extremely important. The life and the story of Hind should not be end in this way. We're talking about six years old girl. She was trapped in her family car for hours after everyone was killed and targeted by Israeli occupation forces. During this, even two paramedics who went to rescue the six-year-old girl was also targeted and their, their ambulance was bombed. We need to see actions happened and to put Israel accountable for committing such crime against a six-year-old girl and civilians who were in their We thank you so much for joining us. Spokesperson for Palestine, Red Crescent. This news is funded by viewers and listeners like you. Please support our work at democracynow.org slash support.